the thing that most bothers me about myself is my self-centeredness and my pride. And brothers, humanity is a self-centered and prideful creature. In the past, we said that the whole universe revolved around us. And in the present, I think we still insist the same exact things, though in different ways. Um, it revolves around us in our own meaning, in our particular meanings of our individual lives. And I think that is the center of pride, and at its core, that idea is atheistic. Um, the problem, however, is that pride and self-centeredness often is allowed to rest comfortably in congregations. Rest comfortably in congregations. And sometimes in very subtle ways where we are preoccupied with asking how God's word applies to me and how Christ applies to me. As if, as if the word and the speech of God is only of a value. And Christ is only of value if it fits into the life I'm already living. It's like sometimes we get sidetracked into feeling that the word of God and Christ is here to serve us. When we enter the kingdom of God, however, brothers... We are given a cross on which to die and a Christ whom to follow, to trust, to love, and to obey. And my heart is still learning that lesson. To be a Christian, to be a Christian fundamentally is to be displaced from the center of your own life. So now that Christ and his kingdom is the center. Amen? Amen? We are his body, after all. We're his body. So today, I want to look at the pinnacle of Christian experience. And we've been talking about spiritual formation, but here I want to talk about the, the height and the mountaintop of Christian experience. If you read with me, Matthew chapter 3. Last time we met, we talked about John the Baptist who prepared the way for the Lord, and we will consider him again as in this text he baptizes the Lord Jesus. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is filling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. To be a Christian is to be displaced from this, the center of our own lives so that Christ is now the center of our own lives. As I just said, 
But the temptation, the temptation is still wanting to be the center. Is there is still part of us, the flesh, that still wants to be the center of attention, that still desires to be the center of appreciation, and still seeks other people's esteem in our own lives. We want to be valued. We want to be looked at. Even as Christians, we know that temptation. In this passage today, John again, I think, stands as a model man of God. He, he, he displays what I would, can only be described as a Christ-centered humility. He had his purpose... And his purpose was to point to Jesus Christ. His whole ministry, his whole life seems to revolve around Jesus Christ as the center of attention. And he is somebody, by his own admission, who when Jesus' ministry began to overshadow his, he said his joy is complete in that. The primary aim of the Christian life and what I would really like to drive into your hearts today is that the Christian life is to be displaced as the center of attention of our lives and to magnify Christ now as the center of of attraction, attention, and the center of affection for our lives. Looking then at verse 13, we see that John the Baptist is somebody who sought to magnify Jesus. Who just did naturally magnify Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized. But John wanted to prevent him. John did not feel worthy to baptize the Christ. I want to back up here for a second. This word magnify is something I really want to hone in on today. That's the word that's been on my heart for the past two weeks. Two weeks magnifying Jesus Christ. Um, Stefan, when we were were picking out the song, Stefan said, have you ever heard of Christ be magnified? I said, that is perfect. That's precisely what I'm preaching on today. Christ be magnified. So why magnify? Magnify, to magnify something means that you are making an object appear bigger and clearer in one's sight. That's what it means to magnify something. Our kids, Wesley and Elise, got a, um, a microscope a few, maybe last year, and they were looking at hair, Nydia's hair, and, and I think they even looked at Wesley's blood one time, and they were looking at little small things. And it's amazing the texture that you could see through this microscope. And it was, it was awe-inspiring to see what was really there. So this, this, this microscope magnified what we could not see, what was not clear, what was not big to our sight. I think, I think, I think a magnifying glass is the most humble instrument a person can have because a magnifying glass its very purpose for existing is not to be looked at but to be looked through so that the object appears 
clearer and bigger in one's sight. And that is precisely what a Christian is called to do. It is he or she is not to be looked at, but to be looked through so that Christ can appear bigger and more glorious and clearer by our actions and attitudes and more worthy than he did before to the lost and dying world. Christ being magnified in us. Now, John the Baptist had a massive ministry. It's hard to, it's hard to understand how, how great his ministry was. We, we know by secular historians that thousands of people were going out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. They saw the, the cheapness and the paucity of, of the religiosity in, in Jerusalem and the Pharisees, they saw the hypocrisy. But John was preaching a baptism of repentance. That the kingdom of God was about to arrive in the Messiah's soon coming. And we know that in his speech, John the Baptist glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. Just the way he talks about Jesus. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. It, it's that, that is the unworthiness, that feeling of unworthiness that Christ is pleased to use in a man or a woman. There's an amazing passage, this always struck me to the heart. In John chapter 1, verse 35 and 37. John had this massive following. He had disciples. But you know what he was doing with those disciples? He was pointing them away from his own ministry and pointing them to Christ. We, th- we see this specifically in that passage. We read that on the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Check this out. His disciples. And he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. John intentionally was pointing his disciples, this massive following he had, away from himself. And they followed Jesus now. I think the heart of John is seen more, most clearly in John chapter 3, 20 and 30 through 30. Where we read John saying, You yourselves bear witness about me that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So in other words, the one who's getting married is the, um, is, the, is the man who's getting married. And what I am, John the Baptist is saying, I'm the best man, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So the, the best man's happy 
that his friend is getting married. He rejoices greatly. Therefore, he says, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. That was the heart of John. He must increase. I must decrease. And he said this was his joy that Christ would increase in the eyes of the people and that he would decrease and his ministry would decrease. So here we have in John a man who understands the matchless worth of Jesus Christ, who understands precisely who he is. He is spellbound by Jesus Christ and he says Christ must increase and I must decrease. So he had a Christ magnifying ministry, wouldn't you say? He didn't want to be looked at. He wanted to be looked through so that Christ would be greater in the eyes of the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, that must be our aim in this church. The aim in this church must be that we would not be looked at, but looked through so that Christ would be bigger and clearer and people would be in awe of him. Far be it from us, church. I mean, we're, we're small, we are non-impressive, but may we remain non-impressive no matter how big we get. The, the goal of our fellowship is not so that people would ever walk in and only say how loving this group is, you know, how, in, how accepting they are. No. The goal would always be, our hope, our prayer would always be that people would walk in and say, they truly, they truly see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They are captured by this man. They want to see this man, this God-man glorified. There's an obsession. There's a hunger. The Apostle Paul said that to the Corinthians, he said, the ideal situation, summarizing, paraphrasing him, is that people would walk in and say, God is really among you. God is really among you. So where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. So we want Christ to be magnified in us by the way we fellowship with one another, by the tone in our, our teaching. It is also that Christ would be magnified. Now the only way... The only way we're going to make Christ magnified so that he becomes bigger and clearer is if we actually ourselves see the worth of Jesus Christ. So that we actually ourselves appreciate and love and want to honor Jesus Christ more. And I think it is that idea being captured by the worth and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ that makes men do extraordinary things for the kingdom. The Apostle Paul said about himself, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That it, is, it, wasn't, it wasn't some theological ideas, ultimately, that led the Apostle Paul. Although theological ideas are extremely important. But the pinnacle and mountaintop of his affections was gaining Christ. It was seeing his glory. It was spreading his fame and majesty. He was a man that was captured and in awe of Jesus Christ. And God uses those kinds of men. This is why I so appreciate men like Paul Washer. I just was watching a clip of him. I think you can look this up on YouTube. Christ outweighs them all. I think is the title of this YouTube video. But when he was talking, he, he was like straining to express himself. He was talking about the worth of Jesus Christ. And then if you put all the earth, everything of value in the earth together, everything that shines, everything that is beautiful, Christ outweighs them all. I encourage you to look at that video and see just another glimpse of a man like John the Baptist who understands the worth of Jesus Christ. So the key to effectiveness, I think, in the kingdom of God is not for you to be a scholar. It's not for you to have the most knowledge. You just need to be captured by one thing. The one thing is an overwhelming appreciation of the worth of Jesus Christ. And that's all you need. And if that's all you have, well then Christ will be pleased to work through you and in you and with you. I I need to say one more thing about this point. Do you know the height of the gospel? What I'm talking about is not something other than the gospel, but this is actually the height and pinnacle of the gospel itself. The pinnacle of the gospel is to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, writes, talks about what unbelievers don't and cannot see. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what they can't see. Who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now get this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the weightiness and the glory in the majesty of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is, 
This is the difference between secular and Christian humility. Right? Secular humility is, is monodirectional. It only goes in one direction. It looks at me and says, I don't think I'm better than anyone else. And that's, that is a good attitude. A Christian, surely, who is nothing but a wretch and saved by grace and can only be anything by the grace of God and through cooperation with his spirit, cannot boast in anything. So that's, that's right and true. But Christian humility goes one step further. It is not just believing that I am not better than anyone, but it's also believing that Christ is more worthy than anyone or anything that the world could possibly offer. So it's, it's, it's two directions for the Christian. It's my unworthiness compared with Christ's overwhelming, earth-creating, reason this world exists-ing. That, that, is, that is what Christian humility is all about. It's not just about me. It's about my esteem for Jesus Christ. So, in John the Baptist, we have a man who pointed away from himself and magnified Jesus Christ. And so John was conflicted, was very conflicted when Jesus came up to him and wanted to receive something from his ministry. Verse 14. Jesus comes up to John and wants to be baptized by him, and John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is filling to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says, in other words, that this is necessary. This is God's will. It fulfills his righteous plan, his will. R.T. France, a biblical scholar, says of this phrase, Jesus regards his baptism among, among repentant Israel as a necessary step in, a, in the accomplishment of God's purpose of salvation. Jesus was identifying with repentant Israel, thus receiving the baptism of John. Not that he needed to be forgiven, not that he needed to repent, but he was identifying with themselves who are calling on the name of the Lord. And it is very evident in the passages I read earlier and right here that John the Baptist understood his unworthiness. And actually we see this internal conflict. I need to be baptized by you. In other words, I need the baptism you give. That baptism with spirit or fire, that's what I need. Why are you coming to me asking for a baptism from water, by water? Jesus told him, it is filling, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And what did he do? He consented, it says, which I find very interesting. John felt unworthy. He was unworthy. And yet Jesus told him that his baptism was part of of God's plan for the world and John the Baptist consented to be used 
So here we have a man who wants nothing but to magnify Jesus Christ, believing he must decrease, and yet he allows himself to be used by God. God uses unworthy men to accomplish his purposes. So yes, he's a humble man. He does not want to be in the spotlight, but he consents to be used by Jesus Christ. Now, we will never be in the unique position of John. He stood on the threshold of the kingdom of God as it entered through Jesus Christ, but we can have the same attitude that John has. It's the attitude of not wanting to be the center, not wanting to be looked at, but looked through, in order that Christ be magnified and yet consent to be used by him. We are, Lord willing, in this church, moving towards elders someday, soon. And eldership has a, is a high calling. The elders must meet the biblical qualifications set forth in Scripture. They must be holy men. They must be humble men. They must be men worthy and, and not worthy in themselves, but who see Christ as worthy and therefore worthy of serving this church. And some of you, I perceive, feel uncomfortable with rising to that occasion. And, it's tr- and, and there's a sense in which that's good, because not many of you should be teachers, the Bible says. But, but even though you feel unworthy, well, let me put that another way. You are unworthy, <laughs> right? God uses unworthy men. And so, the Apostle Paul said, who is sufficient for these things? And when he talked about ministry, who is sufficient? Nobody is sufficient to be a minister of God. But it's, it's through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that we can do these things. So I, I just leave that before you as food for thought. Maybe those of some of you feel un, unqualified in the sense that it's a fearful thing to become an elder in a church. You feel like you're not sufficient. In a sense, you will never be sufficient. Although you must meet the qualifications set forth in Scripture, you will never be sufficient. It's only God who works in us. Okay. Here's the question then. Why magnify Christ? Why magnify Christ? I mean, we think this is right and good, and, and we all agree, but why? Of all the possible endeavors in the world, of all the scientific advancements, of all the issues in our families, of all the job-related stresses, why should our aim and our sole aim and our main purpose be to magnify Christ in all of this? Answer. Because Jesus Christ is the blazing hot center of the purposes of God for the creation of the world. Look at Jesus' baptism. After John the Baptist consented, we read that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This baptism represents an anointing. When David was anointed as king of Israel, 1 Samuel 16, 13 says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And so we see the spirit of the Lord coming down to rest on Jesus. So we have a kingly anointing here, a messianic anointing. But it goes further than that. Because in Isaiah, and the prophecy that Mark read earlier, we see one who would become the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord would be anointed to carry out the plans and the purposes of God. Let me read verse 1 to you again. The prophecy talks about the servant of the Lord and says, Behold my servant in whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So this is a unique anointing of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied in Isaiah, and it shows that Jesus Christ is empowered as a man, even though he is also God, for ministry. And this is, this is exactly what Jesus uh, read. Remember in the synagogue when he got up and read from the scroll? He read from Isaiah 61, I believe, that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. So Jesus was a man, a God-man, anointed by the Spirit. You guys getting that? All right, stick with me for a minute. Stick with me here. We're inside. We're going to be all right. So, Christ's... What I see in this, this anointing of Jesus, is that Christ's ministry was, was carried out. I don't, think, I don't think it was him acting through his divine power. I think Jesus, when he became man, when he added manhood to his divinity, actually restricted himself to operate in this world as a man. And this spirit anointing, is actually the way that Jesus is empowered for ministry. Very interesting phrase in Luke. Jesus says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. In Hebrews we read that Jesus, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself up as a sacrifice to God. So what is very interesting is, I think in the main... Jesus did his ministry and carried out even his miracles as a man through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit worked through him uniquely because he was the God-man and he had a specific mission in the world. But it does, it does forecast the fact that the life of God in the Christian enables him to live a peculiar and powerful holiness that he could never attain without the Spirit. 
One last thing I see in this. Look at the baptism of Jesus and what happens here. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens were open and the spirit of God descended like a dove and came to rest on him. And then the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now I ask you, where else, where else in scripture do you see the spirit hovering over waters and the voice of the father and the word of God present? Genesis 1, 2, And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Do you see what's being said here about Jesus? He is the center of God's new creation. He makes all things new. God's new creation begins here with Jesus Christ. That's why if anyone is in Christ, you know what they are? Why they're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus Christ is the blazing hot center of God's purposes for the world. He is the new creation. We read in Colossians that by him all things were made. They were made through him and for him. And to be included in those amazing benefits... You must be in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are part of this new creation. So, why should we magnify Christ? Because it's the reason the world exists. Because Jesus Christ is the center of God's new creation. His new thing. He makes all things new. To Christ be the glory. There is, no, there is no way I could get up here, no matter how much I stream my voice, no matter the specificity with which I use my words, there's nothing that could possibly express the idea fully and adequately that I am trying to express to you right now. Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul said that he wanted to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and be made like him unto his death. That there are men and women who have understood the worth of Jesus Christ. It is my prayer. It's my prayer because that's the only way. So how can we gain this? Only by asking God to show us the glory of Christ. Only by us searching the scriptures and seeing how everything points to Jesus Christ and attempting to press that into my heart and mind and to love that and to appreciate that and to believe it and to live it. Only by prayer and the word can God do this for us. But I pray that he does. And I pray that we grow in an appreciation for the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ.